Good evening, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain. Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you're having a good evening. Can you believe, my friends, that it is, in fact, one month since the election? One month since the election. Isn't that wild? That blows my mind. The, the, the degree to which time is just ripping forward these days is kind of blowing my mind. And here he is to save the day. Good evening from Houston, Texas. Hello, carpet bomber of truth. <laughs> I'm sure that'll get us into an NSA database. Let's go, baby. You are live now. And fantastic. Yeah. Hey, look at that. Wasn't even picking my ear with a plastic fork and chopsticks when I went live. And uh, yeah, good evening, everybody. Are there any other th first world Democrat countries that would allow an election to be stolen like the U.S.? Well, you know, I got to tell you guys, the, the election shenanigans, I mean, of course, there's a lot of stuff going on that uh, appears to be completely invisible to one William Barr and other people, but vast majority of these um, agencies and uh, law enforcement, the vast majority of them vote Democrat and probably don't mind it particularly much, but I'll tell you this. The real shenanigans with regards to the election came about because, uh, I mean, gosh, it's almost two years ago that I started to get really suppressed, right? So it's sort of a brief history of suppression of philosophy, and it is suppression of philosophy. It's not suppression of me. I'm just some dude, uh, but it's suppression of philosophy, which is an age-old tactic of the powers that be. See, the powers that be don't want you to be happy. They don't want you to be independent. They don't want you to be clear thinking. Uh, they don't want you to be intellectually armed against their sophistry. You know how there's like a vaccine for COVID that's supposed to have just got approved in the UK today? There's a vaccine against political power. There's a vaccine against collectivism and socialism, communism, fascism, you name it. There's a vaccine against these things. And yes, indeed, it's called philosophy. Now, whether you think I'm a good philosopher or a bad philosopher is not particularly material. What I am is a very popular philosopher. And you may even say, well, you're not even a philosopher. And it's like, but that's a philosophical question <laughs> to begin with. What is a philosopher? And I would say that somebody is a philosopher who, you know, has probably some level of training in the discipline, not essential. You can be a painter without having gone to painting school. But a philosopher is someone who has ideally some measure of training in the discipline, which I have. My graduate degree philosophy, uh, my graduate degree was in the history of philosophy. So what else is a philosopher? Well, a philosopher is someone who makes universal arguments, particularly in the realm of morality, right? So there's the philosophy of metaphysics, that is what is real. There's the philosophy of epistemology, what is true. There's the philosophy of politics, how should power, if at all, be wielded, political power, violent power, should it be wielded in society? And then there is the philosophy of ethics. Now, the philosophy of metaphysics, which is what is real, well, science has a lot to do with that argument, right? I mean, you can say what is real and what is not real in science. In fact, every time we walk through a doorway, we're pretty good at figuring out what is real and what is not real, because there's the door frame. Hopefully the door is open. You're not in among us being boxed in by an imposter. Sorry, I'd be playing a little bit with my daughter who loves the game, and it's fun. But um, 
you walk through a doorframe, you're pretty good at figuring out what's real and what's not, what's there and what's not, what exists and what doesn't exist. You don't walk through the door trying to create a sort of wily coyote outline through the door, right? So pretty good at figuring out what's real and what's not. I mean, if you can't figure out what's real and what's not, you're probably going to get better glasses. You're probably going to get your eyes checked for various ailments or diseases. Because if you can't figure out what's real or what's not walking around, it means you've got some significant problem with your eyesight and it's an ailment to be fixed, right? So that's what's real. Now, what is true? Also a philosophical question, but also answered to a large degree by science. I mean, just think of a double-blind experiment, right? Where you have a bunch of people with an ailment and some of them are given a medicine and some of them are giving a sugar pill or a placebo or something like that. And you try and figure out, does the medicine actually help people? who don't know whether it's the real medicine or fake medicine. Maybe there are some people you don't give any medicine to. So you get a double or triple blind experiment. So you figure out, is it true to say this medicine helps people? You can figure that out. Now that, of course, is a medical and scientific and statistical analysis. So we've got science, we've got medicine. Engineering is, is it true that the bridge will stand up and to have a bridge that stands up as an engineer, you need to accept the basic facts of reality. I mean, you need to accept tensile strength and gravity and wind and pressure and all that and the weight of trucks as you go over the bridge or whatever, right? So engineers, physicists, biologists, scientists of every stripe and hue, uh, doctors, researchers, and so on, they're all engaged in what is real and what is true. Now, the study of coercion of political coercion, not the study of criminality, we have to be criminologists, right? But the study of coercion. And that is, when, when we're talking about the state, that's political science, right? Now, political science usually vaults right over the question of, is giving a small group of political elites the obligation to initiate the use of force against everyone else. Is that even moral? Because the answer to that is, of course, it's not moral. It's why I'm a voluntarist. It's why I'm a anarcho-capitalist, because universal is the thing to do when you're a philosopher. So vaulting over the politics, we come to the big question, which only philosophers can answer, right? We Scientists can answer what is real. Scientists, engineers, and what is true, what is valid. But only philosophers can answer, or should, I mean, it's the only discipline that really focuses on this, what is good, what is right, what is moral, what is immoral. And, I mean, scientists obviously are informed by ethics, but it is not primarily an ethical discipline because you can be a scientist without studying ethics. You may just obey the ethics of your governing body, which usually is the opposite of ethics. But if someone teaches you what is real, and from that, what is true? So a truth is when the statements and the comments made from the mind and through the medium of language, are they accurately representing that which is in reality? I mean, you point at a tree, you say, it's a tree. Is that a true statement? Well, it depends. Concept of tree, does it actually apply to the thing you're pointing at? And is that actually a tree? So concepts in the mind and their relation to objects in the world, which we get through the evidence of the senses, that is what is true. And this is a funny thing, you know. I thought about this before, long before I did this show. And good evening from Roanoke, Texas. Very, very nice. Very, very nice. There is video on a MacBook, but not on the iPhone app. I wonder. I've done 1080p. 
Um, I don't think I can change that live. So maybe that's got, maybe that's sort of the issue. But here's the thing, right? So for those of you who don't know, when I was a teenager, I worked for a couple of years in a daycare. And it was me and one other supervisor in a class of 30 kids, all aged five to 10. It was pretty wild. And I worked there after school. I had negotiated with the school to get out of work early because for the age of 15, I was sort of paying my own bills. So they knew that I had to work. And I was working like two or three jobs throughout um, high school. And so the teachers would let me leave 10 minutes early because I had to get on the bus to get to the daycare. There was two buses to get to the daycare so that I could be there when the kids were delivered there from their school. And I really liked the kids. And, you know, to be honest, they really liked me. Um, I, I remember telling them the, I remember sitting them down and acting out and telling them the story of the Silmarillion by Tolkien, and they just loved that stuff. And it was a very multicultural neighborhood, multi-ethnic neighborhood, and I just really, really liked it. I really liked the kids. And in the summers, I would work there full-time, of course, right, sort of nine to six, and we would go to parks. Uh, I remember going to see the movie The Last Starfighter. Well, to be fair, I didn't actually see the movie much because, you know, when you've got a bunch, I was like, I had 15 kids with me, right? Because it was like 15 each for the other uh, supervisor and myself. So <laughs> go to see the movie. And what you do, of course, is you say, all right, does anybody, does anybody need to go to the washroom before we go in to see the movie? No, absolutely not. I just went, I'm good, man. I'm set. Then, of course, you settle in, a couple of previews, got your popcorn on your lap. And next thing you know, there's a ripple to your right. And the ripple is kids nudging each other saying, hey, so-and-so has to go to the bathroom. Okay, so then what you do is you say, hey, the movie hasn't even started yet. Is there anybody else who needs to go to the bathroom? And the answer is uh, no, no, uh, no, no, we're all good. We're ready for the movie, right? So you get up and you take the kid to the bathroom. And uh, then uh, what do you do? Uh, you come back and you say, Okay, while I'm up, you, you get the right, you get the pattern. Long story short, um, I, I saw probably about 12 minutes of the movie scattered he, here and there. I've always sort of mean to watch it again because I have these very fragmentary scraps of the movie, The Last Starfighter, but of course I've never really gotten around to it. But anyway, that was my sort of deal. And one of the things that I noticed was kids, uh, toddlers, we also had, I remember there were one or two kids kind of cycling in and out who had significant cognitive deficiencies, like significant cognitive deficiencies. And there was a five-year-old girl there who, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. And yet, and yet, if you threw a ball to her, she could catch it. Throw a ball to her, she can catch it. You roll a ball towards a baby, they will reach for it. You roll the ball under the couch, the baby will go and look for it. So we're really, really good at reality. And that's our birthright. We're really, really good at reality. When we start out in life, we are wired to take care of reality, to notice reality, to process reality, to function within reality, to manipulate reality, right? And it's beautiful. All right, just before my next point, shall we distribute some lemons? Yeah, why not? Let's distribute some lemons. I am now distributing the rewards. Normally, that's just me taking off my shirt, but not today, folks. Not today. Did you, uh, you watch the movie? It's a good movie. It's a good movie? Is it a good movie? All right, 15 seconds. We're going to get some chest rewards. 
Ah, weren't we all looking for those as teenagers, if you're male? Chest rewards. Absolutely. All right, just wait for a sec. Here it comes. Here it comes. That's right. You are all set. NCAP Groiper, Truth Seeker, Lee Species Beef, LF Nord, Ellis Evadira, you are all set. There you go. Lemon. You got it. Did you hear Project Veritas, CNN's Jeff Sucker discussing the crafting of news, CNN pure propaganda? Yeah, I like James O'Keefe, who's been on the show a couple of times. I like um, Project Veritas, but, uh, ooh, CNN's biased. Stop the presses. <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, that's like going back to Pravda and saying, you know, I'm not entirely positive those five-year plans were legit. I'm not sure they were on the up and up. So it just seems like it's, I don't want to say basic bitch stuff, but it just seems like... Um, Ooh, wow, CNN is, is, has an agenda. I mean, just that's what people are spending their time on these days. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, hello, I met you at Porkfest about 10 years ago. Boom, that's a ways back ago. Thank you for teaching me about peaceful parenting. I wish I had learned your lessons sooner. You are very welcome, King Irwig. And uh, thank you very much for embodying peaceful parenting. And I really, really appreciate that. And I'm sure your kids do as well. So the one thing I noticed when I was working in the daycare was that kids were really good at reality. And it kind of makes you think, right? What is it that gets in the way of us being good at reality so badly from when we're kids to when we're adults to the point where we just can't talk about reality or the truth at all in any way, shape, or form? Uh, boy, it's, it's a pretty long and tortured brain-mangling journey from the simple, pure, beautiful empiricism of childhood. And I'm not just talking about physical reality, like what is true and so on, right? I'm talking about also the moral reality. You know, the, the moral, re well, what we teach children, it's just amazing. You know, there's an old, you know, it's an old poster or something like that. All my life lessons I learned in kindergarten or whatever it is, right? And it's kind of true. It's kind of true. It's kind of true. So, in daycare, you're told, don't use force. Don't hit, don't steal, don't push, don't bully. And that's the rule, and that's enforced. And I just, again, it's the mind-blowing thing, which is, what if the small morals are also the big morals? What if the morals we inflict upon kids are actually universal? Like, that, that, that's a mind, like think about it. It's a mind-blowing idea. You can sit all afternoon with an eye patch on, listening to, uh, I don't know, some Pink Floyd instrumental, and just mulling over that idea that what if the morals we teach our kids are the big-ass, universal, universe-spanning deep through time across the universe actual morals. Don't hit. Don't lie. Don't steal. We don't have a lot of murdering going on with kids, hopefully, but what, what, if, what if that's it? Like, what if it's that simple? Now, UPB, my theory of ethics, uh, I actually just had a talk with Dr. Duke Pester on Monday about that. It's not out yet, but um, what, what if... Just what if all of those morals are the actual morals of humanity? Because kids get it pretty quickly. Kids get it pretty quickly. And yet, boom, right? So my daughter at the moment is, you know, working with 
lying. She's, I mean, it sounds bad, but, you know, in, in Among Us and so on. And, and, and she's just working with that and figuring out how to make a good story and, and figuring out how to suss people. And all. It's really cool. So what if those morals are just, that's it, man. And, and, and you think this is, sounds like an esoteric concept, right? But it's not really. So the modern world is founded on the idea that the moral, so the physics of the everyday are the physics of the universe, that what we experience in our everyday life, that those are the morals, uh, sorry, the, uh, the physics of the universe, the, mor- the, the physical laws that we experience and process every day. <sighs> That's amazing. It's an amazing concept. The entire view of the universe, right? The sun-centered solar system, the relative inconsequentiality of our galaxy and, and all of that. And the fact that everything we see in the sky is round and turns out our planet is round. The fact that everything we, we have and hold and we drop falls to the ground just as the earth falls around the sun, the sun falls around the Milky Way, the Milky Way falls around, well, I don't know, where's the dark matter? Dark matter at the center of the Milky Way or something like that. Everything falls Everything's round, and the physics of the everyday is also the physics of the universe, because what used to happen was there was this big giant rift, this tear, this giant, massive, epistemological, metaphysical tear between our direct personal experience and the universe as a whole. And that is the breaking of that, right, to the point where there were miracles that came out of deities uh, that... The Earth was the center of uh, the universe that even though everything we see is round and rotates, even, we even know that the moon rotates, it just happens to rotate so the one side is always facing us. So everything is round, everything rotates, everything falls. That's our experience. That's what we see. But we broke that when it came to the Earth. The Earth was the center of the universe. It was flat. The, the, um, everything revolved around us uh, and, and God had made us and so on. So the physics of the everyday did not translate into the physics of the universe. But the modern conception of the universe came about when we stopped saying, well, it's just a test of faith, right? So I've told this before, but just for those of you who don't know, right? One of the things that really reinforced the fact that the sun was the center of the universe is that, you know, like it goes Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, right? In concentric circles of orbits, right? And so there's a time, because Mars has a slower orbit because it's bigger, right? So there's a time where the Earth is racing around the Sun and Mars, from the perspective of Earth, does this reverse motion, right? So then we start accelerating. It looks like it's going backwards. Then it starts, it's called retrograde motion. It's going forward, starts to go back, and then goes forward again, right? Now, the way that the ancients solved this to keep the Earth at the center of the universe was pretty wild. What they said was... Oh, there's circles within circles and rings within rings, and it's all, you know, it can't possibly be that the orbits are not round, circular, because the circle is perfect and God wouldn't make an ellipse or anything like that. And this held true, this reasoning held true for thousands of years. Well, maybe not thousands, because it's hard to know exactly when the first conception of the solar system came along, but it held kind of true. And then what they said was, okay, it's kind of complicated. So to calculate the position of Mars was ridiculously complicated using the Earth at the center, and these circles within circles. It's called the Ptolemaic, P-T-O-L, <laughs> Ptolemaic, P-T-O-L-E-M-A-I-C, or something like that, Ptolemaic. And 
it got ridiculously complicated. And then what happened was they said, okay, well, what if, what if we just go with the Earth at the center of the solar system, sorry, the Sun at the center of the solar system, and then we got Mercury, we got Venus, we got Earth, we got Mars, Jupiter, and all that, Saturn. So it's pretty wild when you think about it, right? They just said, okay, once we put the Earth at the center of the solar system, everything is totally simple. Everything is, is it all makes sense. You need like th three calculations to figure out where Mars is. It explains the retrograde motion. It explains everything. Everything. It allows you to predict when Mercury and Venus are going to be in front of the sun. It allows you to predict everything. It explains everything. And it's just like, ah, nice and easy. Nice, easy peasy, nice and easy. And just a little bit sleazy, right? So when you get the personal physics of the everyday expanded to the universe as a whole, one rule, one law, one physics, the whole universe clicks into place and makes sense. But, 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 that's the big problem. That's the big problem. The problem is that that completely screws with power structures in the world. Completely screws with power structures in the world. So, that's, think, think of the tsunami against the existing power structures that taking the physics of the everyday produced when we took it from the everyday and made it universal, brought it all out into the universe, into the world as a whole. Because there were two foundational structures, power structures, that, that required the Earth to be at the center of the solar system right? Um, the clergy of the time and the aristocracy, the, the kings, the queens, the lords, the lairds, the esquires on my family. I, was an es I am actually an esquire, believe it or not. My family is registered and we were royalty. Blue bloods in Ireland over from France in the Battle of Hastings 1066 and so on. So I am an esquire, but you don't have to refer to me that way because, <laughs> well, I don't even have to say cause, right? So, when you moved the Earth from the center of the solar system, that was a hand blow to the Catholic Church, to Christendom as a whole. And through the Catholic Church, the moral and political authority, morality, and legitimacy of the aristocracy. The worldview determines the political structure, the, the metaphysics and the epistemology, the cosmology determines the political structure. Isn't that wild? Now, I'll tell you this. The more complicated things get, the more exploitation is being covered up. The, I'm telling this again. The more complicated things get, the more exploitation is being covered up. And if you want to know why modern academia is so full of polysyllabic, brain-twisting, spine-stretching, child-cracking bullshit... It's because it's all designed to cover up such unbelievable levels of exploitation that you need incredibly convoluted language just to cover up the immorality of the entire system. In the same way, the king said, well, I'm appointed here by God and you have to obey me. Okay, but if there is no God, then you're just some aging guy who's losing his grip on his sword and we can Macbeth you into kingdom come. Hmm, right? Because, you know, the, the old have a problem, right? So they, you got some young strapping fighter and he can go 
he's got real skills, he's got real muscles, he can go beat the crap out of everyone. Right? He can go beat the crap out of everyone. But the problem is he gets old. <laughs> Live by the sword, die by the sword. He gets all kinds of old. So what do you do if you are a, a violent oligarch and you know you're going to get old and the younger people, right, you, you kill a bunch of people to get your power, well, those people have sons. And you're going to get old and creaky and the sons are going to grow up to be young and strapping and they're just going to kill your ass, right? Vengeance for my father. So what do you do? Ah, <laughs> well, funny story. What you do, you see, is you invent a cosmology wherein to kill you is to damn your soul. Anybody who comes and kills the king is going against the highest moral authority who is God. God appoints the king, and this way the king can get old and die in bed, surrounded by, you know, the, the king is dead, long live the king. He can get old and die in bed, surrounded by his family and with the priest around, and it's probably been 30 years since he could win a sword battle, but no one's killed him because, you see, he's imbued with the divine. And so when you take the earth from the center of the solar system and you put the sun there, then the ecclesiastical, the theological justifications of the king, they're gone, baby, gone. They're gone, baby, gone. And if you want to understand things like the American Revolution, the French Revolution, even some of the guy forks, the British Revolution, 17th century and so on, you've got to understand that the more complicated the Ptolemaic system got, the more it was covering up a fundamental falsehood. And if you look at how a lot of times, I've talked to Tom Woods about this, so I know there's two sides of the story, but a lot of times the church was quite hostile towards the emerging theology of the heliocentric universe. Why? Because if, the, if they've said the reason we have power, the reason we have authority to anoint a king, to gain your resources, take 10% of your resources in terms of a tithe, it's all fundamentally based on the fact that the, earth, that the, the Bible says the earth is fixed and does not move with the center and the jewel and the eye of the crown of God's creation. We appoint the, you know, we're an old priest. We can't hit anyone with a sword and have it do much. But what we can do is we can imbue, or sorry, imbue the aristocracy with the divine. So even if the aristocrat is old, I mean, this, I played Macbeth in theater. It's an amazing role. It taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about how dangerous women can be and also how dangerous ambition can be because the two are often tied in together. But the king is old. And Macbeth is young. He's like this combine harvester who just goes through killing all the peasants he can find because, <laughs> you know, the king tells him to. And I remember when I played the role, talking with the director, money, <laughs> talking to the director and saying, the play starts with Macbeth who's just coming back from the field of battle. He's probably killed like 50 peasants because <laughs> they're not very well armed back in the day, right? He's just killed a whole bunch of people and he's fine. Then he kills one king. And he can't sleep, and it's suicidal, and his wife kills... Spoiler, right? Wife kills herself and all that, right? Pretty wild. <laughs> it's pretty wild, right? I remember thinking, yes, but he said, but it's the divinity and the God, and the blah, blah, blah. You're sinning against God, whereas you're not sinning against God by hacking down some peasants. You're sinning against God by killing the king and all that. And, of course, part of the play of Macbeth and Shakespeare had to survive in his time just as I do in mine. He had to put out in the 16th century a very poetic curse against anyone who questions the power and value 
of authority. So the Ptolemaic system got ridiculously complicated. You look at Marxism, how complicated it becomes. You look at identity politics, postmodernism. It all just gets ridiculously complicated. Why? Because the more you're like, <laughs> the more you're stealing, the more you want to have fog around you. Or you don't want to be seen. You don't want clear, simple principles that children could understand. So you lecture children with these clear, simple principles, but then when you grow up, you have to have those clear, simple principles that you were expected to live under as a child ripped out of your brain and replaced with convoluted, lower-intestine bullshit that just have you sighing and withdrawing from the field of battle because you can't figure out which way is up. Like I did a debate some years ago with a professor, a, a, a well-on, full-on academic, Dr. Thaddeus Russell, and he actually said to me, and it's mind-blowing, he actually said to me, there's no way we can prove for sure that it's impossible for a woman to have a child or have offspring by having sex with a tree. I'm not fucking kidding. This is what people are going into debt for, to be told that a woman can bang a tree and you might get some mini Groot coming out of the equation. What the fuck is wrong with you people? Holy shit. Now, of course, if you're a kid and you're, you're studying science, right? If you're a kid and you say in, in a little, you got an exam or whatever, and, and you say, yes, but it is, of course, possible for a woman to mate with a tree and produce viable offspring. <laughs> Leave the bullshit that people believe for money. This is incredible, right? You, you put that in as a kid, you're going to fail. But then you become a respected academic and all of that, right? Jesus Christ. All right. Let's get to you. Let's get to you. Let's get to you. Let's see here. He likes the sound of his own voice, hey? You can fuck right off. Thank you. You know, um, yeah, the people who are like, I like the sound of my own voice. <laughs> you know, if I liked the sound of my own voice, why on earth would I have grabbed onto the live wire of the most essential truths necessary to save society at the cost of being deplatformed from every place just about imaginable? If I just liked the sound of my own voice, like people could just screw right off when it comes to that kind of stuff. And, and if you think it's easy to do what I'm doing, Go do it yourself and just see how long you last and see how well you do. So, yeah, just the idea that I'm driven by some sort of intellectual vanity or I just, listen, what, was, what, is, what time is it now? So in about 20 to 25 minutes, I've kind of explained the whole modern world. I've explained ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, history, the aristocracy, 20, 25 minutes. <laughs> This is the kind of squished up accordion compressed value. I'm like a zip file, man. <laughs> That's pretty funny. All right. Uh, let's see here. Do you enjoy theoretical cosmology? I do. I do. I really do. I really do. We love the sound of Stefan's voice. I do. I'm actually a quite, uh, quite good. Quite good. To, uh, um, I, I had a lot of voice training. Like I just, I just finished uh, reading. It took me a couple of months. It's well over 20 hours, this audio book of my novel, Almost, which you really, really should listen to. I'm telling you, uh, I'm telling you, I'm going to pull back from doing shows for a little while just so people can get into this book. It's really, really great. And 
I've been listening back to it, of course, uh, you know, checking the voices and all of that, and I actually forget that it's me because I kind of um, morph into other characters' voices and add this the Welsh guy, the Irish woman, there's Churchill, there's Chamberlain, there's uh, Lord Halifax, there's like a lot of people with a lot of different voices, and uh, it's a pretty good job, pretty good job of getting these across. I have a good instrument for this, not such a great singing voice, which actually when I was younger would have totally preferred, but um, definitely for... For this kind of stuff, it's uh, it's a good it's a good and pleasant voice. So, let's see here. Is this live? Molyneux is such a good broadcaster, but he does have years of practice. Still, he knows how to work a room. I work a room. You should see me work a pole, baby. All right, let's get to your questions and your comments. I like your short videos you posted recently. Thank you. I appreciate that. Resistor version says, "Just joined you, Steph, for the first time on here. Thanks for doing these. It is my my pleasure." Have you heard Trump's new 46-minute speech yet? No, I'm not uh, reading too much about politics uh, at the moment. I can get into why if you guys are interested. But, Steph, how do you deal with hidden enemies, commies, without violating the non-aggression principle? They are eating away at the foundations. So, yeah, well, um... <laughs> all right, all right, I will tell you. You won't like it, but I'm going to tell you. So, when I came up with secular ethics and... No matter what happens to me in the future, they'll never be able to take away the fact that I was the one who grasped the golden apple, the holy grail of philosophy, secular ethics without gods or government, right? It's universally preferable behavior. The book is available for free. You can get it if you want to read um, a better summary of it, because, you know, I had 10 more years to sort of think about it, debate about it. In my book, Essential Philosophy, you can get it at essentialphilosophy.com. It's free. It's free. Essential philosophy, I've got a bunch of platonic dialogues, and I also have an entire chapter on an introduction to secular ethics. So, and I was just talking about this with Dr. Pester recently on Monday, right? And here's the big problem. If you talk about the ethics of the state of statism, the virtue of the state, you have punishment built in. And what's that punishment? That punishment is you get arrested, you go to jail, right? or you get fined, or whatever it is, right? So you've got a punishment built in. You talk about God, heaven, and hell. Then you have virtues, and you have punishment. Ha-ha, right? What do you do with secular ethics? What do you do with ethics that do not rely on the gun of the state or the ghost of the God? How do you inflict punishment on ethics without a government to send you to jail, or a god to send you to hell. How do you do it? Well, right after I came up with secular ethics, I came up with the punishment. <laughs> right? Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, because it's just kind of funny, right? Because I knew that without punishment, it's just, la, 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 just a bunch of talk. Dust in the wind, right? So I came up with the punishment. Now, the punishment, and I did speeches about this like 12, 13 years ago. This has been a long the great Dick Gregory introduced me at Libertopia 2010. I got a whole speech out there. You can find it, uh, Libertopia 2010, How to Achieve Freedom. The whole speech, whole big, passionate, powerful speech, which I, of course, I love speaking in front of people. It's nice speaking in front of a camera, but I really like being in the same carbon-based planet room with you guys. So the way that you enforce secular ethics is through ostracism. Ostracism is an incredibly powerful and untapped method of inflicting punishment on those who 
disobey fundamental morals. We can't survive alone. We are social animals, and the same brain neural networks that are activated by literal physical torture are also activated by ostracism. And the great thing is you don't have to do anything. You don't have to lift a finger. You don't have to make a phone call. You don't have to go see people. You don't have to give the money. You don't have to do anything to enforce secular ethics, just ostracism. Ostracism can work at a personal level, and we do it all the time, right? Some acquaintance bothers you. You don't pursue the friendship. Don't return the calls. You go out with some girl, and she turns out to be batshite crazy. Well, you don't see her again. You ghost her or whatever. You may, maybe you'll say something. Maybe you won't, but you ostracize people all the time. Every time you walk past a store, you're ostracizing people. Every time you buy a car, you're ostracizing buses, mopeds, camels, cars, <laughs> you, trains, you name it. Every time you get a pogo stick, every time you are pogo sticking, you're ostracizing everything that's not pogo sticking. Ostracism is our foundational fundamental position. It's our default position. You're listening to me, you glorious, happy few. <laughs> you're listening to me. You're ostracizing, in a sense, everyone else. Now, it's not a conscious ostracism, like you're just... But, right? Ostracism is it, baby. That's how we run society. It's the only way we can run society in a civil manner, a moral manner. So in a free society, well, just think of it now. Just think of it now. Let's say that someone is a Nazi, like a national socialist. They love Hitler. They hate Jews. They want to jail homosexuals. They want to go and kill all of the people with IQ over 100 in Poland. They just, the whole thing, right? They're big fans of the Night of the Long Knives. <laughs> they uh, believe that Julius Stryker should be one's model for mature sexuality. Just the whole thing, right? Well, what happens in society if you go around saying, I'm a Nazi, that's not me, <laughs> right? Someone's going to, right? What happens if you go around saying that? Well, you get ostracized. You get, people don't want to spend time with you. I mean, I guess a few people do, God help them. But now, of course, that's the way we work. And, and that prevents Nazism from gaining ground. Now, communism is as bad, if not worse by death count than, than communism, uh, than Nazism. And communism is worse because it's not ostracized, right? If you were a Nazi and you try to get a job at a university, you can't get a job at a university. You are a Marxist, you can, I mean, it's almost a prerequisite to get a job at a university in the social sciences these days, right? So, you're not allowed to ostracize communists. That's the problem, right? Because you got to pay them through the welfare state if they're unemployed. you got to pay them through, the, uh, through academia because a lot of it's funded by taxes. And then you've gotta, you're forced to subsidize student loans or pay for them directly so people can go and get indoctrinated by Marxists. So right now, it's impossible to ostracize Marxists. That's because of the state. I mean, the ostracism of national socialists, yeah, that's, that's kind of down, right? Tells you who won the Second World War, right? So you can ostracize the Nazis, but you can't ostracize the communists. So in a free society, someone's like in a, in a future free society, somebody who says, I'm a Marxist, I'm a communist, I'm a socialist, will be treated the same way that somebody who says, I'm a Nazi, I'm a KKK member, whatever it is, right? Those, that's how it's going to be. Right now it's not. Of course, right? It's quite the opposite, right? If you oppose these people, you know, like... And people like me, people like you, like we are the real resistance, you understand? I mean, this, this, oh, I'm the resistance, which means I ally myself with the... 
I mean, who do you not ally yourself? The mainstream media, academia, Disney, big corporations, Wall Street, like Obama, the military industrial complex. I'm a I'm a rebel, man, because because I work on the Death Star. And and sometimes I leave a scuff mark on the wall, but I'm still blowing up the big Aldebaran destroying laser tripartite weapon of doom. So, no, I mean, we are the real resistance because we oppose the initiation of the use of force in all contexts and under all circumstances. So we're the underground. We are hopefully the future, hopefully not the past, hopefully not to be hunted down. But, um, yeah, we are the uh, we are the future. And, I mean, they'll look back. Of course, you know, it's going to be like, you know how, how it goes. You know how it goes, right? So for hundreds of years, people debated the question of slavery, right? The abolitionists wanted to abolish slavery. The people wanted to keep slavery. And, of course, everyone in their dark, you look back at it now, right? And you say, how could there have been a debate? How could there have been a debate about the morality of owning human beings like livestock? How could there have... People debated serfdom. In fact, serfdom was diminishing in um, Russia in the 19th century, early 20th century. And people were like, how could you really debate buying and selling people with plots of land like they were livestock? How, how could this even really be? How could that be a debate? <laughs> now, people, of course, in the future, if there is to be a future, people in the future will look back at these conversations. I'm conscious of this all the time. Like, what keeps you going? What keeps you going is the applause of the future. The giant fuck you that comes out of the present that's necessary for the applause of the future. Like the first guy who woke up and said, ah, you know what? This slavery thing, it's not right. I know it's every human institution. I know it's every human society. I know it's all across the world. I know it's all throughout time. I know it's the foundation of everything. I know we don't have a clue how to get crops in, how to get clothes made, how to get earth clear. We don't have a clue how to do any of this without slaves. But nonetheless, something's not right about all of this. Well, that guy, the first spark, right? That's not me with regards to statism and anti-statism, but we, we look back and say, how on earth could there really have been any kind of debate? Now, if there is a future, and eventually there will be, a future is going to look back and say, those magnificent, brave, lonely bastards. And I'm telling you, man, there'll be statues. There'll be movies made. There'll be novels, there'll be cheers, they'll play, maybe they'll play this little bit a hundred years from now, 500 years from now, a thousand years, they'll play this bit and they'll say, my God, to have stood tall in the face of everything, you magnificent bastards, (laughs) you heroes, you staunch souls. You adamantine spines, which stood unmovable as if you were nailed to the center of the fucking planet. You heroic skyscraper fireworks of human beings who managed to pass a torch that you made through a hell of a storm, through raining frogs, through lashings of rain, as my aunts used to say, lashings of rain out there. You managed to pass this fire to the future. And you suffered for it, and you were attacked for it, and you were lied about for it. And still, you fucking did it. A little crazy. (laughs) All the progress of the future looks like madness to the present, particularly. 
moral progress. Moral progress looks like evil to the mind that's around you in the present. But to the future, who thank you enormously, thank me enormously for what we are doing at the moment, for the stand we are taking in the face of near-universal attacks, deplatforming, defunding, the lies of fools and sophists and malevolent souls or soulless of all dimensions. That we are standing here guarding this and these precious truths. Because without us, the fire goes right out. Without us, the fire goes right out. As Churchill said on the eve of World War II. Lamps are going out all across Europe. I do not know if we shall see them lit again in our lifetime. But the lights are going out. We've had a brief incandescent moment a couple of years where three quarters of a billion philosophy shows just from this brain and my Listeners and my interview subjects, we've got three quarters of a billion points of light spread out across the world like fireflies shot into deep space from a fucking cannon. It was a beautiful eruption of light, truth, reason, and reality such as the world has never seen before. And then the blowback comes and the lashings of rain comes and the lies come and the Sky rains with spears, it seems, and we're down now a couple of hundred. But that is because of the success of the previous round. You know, if you take the heavyweight championship, everybody guns for you, and a lot of people would just rather drug you than fight you. A lot of people would just rather knock pepper into your eyes than put them up and step up. Because I, I get asked this, like, what, what is it keeps you going? All this opposition, all these lies, all these attacks. All... Everybody in the future loves us. Everybody in the deep future loves us, worships us, thanks us, names schools after us, names pets after us. We will be on maps, you understand. We'll be on maps. Do you know how much they need us? Do you know how much they love us? Do you know how much they revere us? Think of your heroes in the past. They faced the same storms, the same chasms, the same canyons, the same lies, the same threats, the same danger. And they just went on anyway. Why? Because fuck the liars, right? Fuck the scurvy-tongued sons of bitches who make up terrible insults on good people. And fuck all of the idiots who listen to them as well. The two sides of the same coin. The liars and the fools. Two sides of the same coin. Fuck them both. We have what we have now. Because people just put their fucking heads down 
braced into the storm and just kept going. The option being what? Falling down in the mud? Drinking it deep? And choking out? That's, that's the choice. To be honest, these days is to be beaten down, to be truthful, to be courageous, is to be attacked in silence. That's what it means to get out of bed. Look out your fucking window and say, hey, I saw something true and I'm going to tell the world. Hey, I read some interesting data. I'm going to tell the world. Hey, there's something people aren't talking about that's really important. I'm going to tell the world. Right? And the future, this fork in the road, the future, this fork in the road. Do you know what it's doing? Everybody, think of the most intense, intense sports ball game you've ever watched. For me, I think it was like the 93 World Series in baseball. I think that was like the last baseball game I ever watched. I went out when they won Toronto Blue Jays and led the crowd in a rousing rendition of We Are the Champions, which is quite a night. And think of you at the edge of your seat. Someone's, I want this person to win. I want this team to win. I want this. Now imagine, imagine you've got all your savings tied up in the victory of one team, one person. All your savings, every piece of money you have in the world is tied up on one side winning. I'll tell you what's happening. There are two worlds in the future. They have diverged. The world that goes down into totalitarianism, into slavery, into the deaths of billions of people. The lamps of civilization going out all across the world and we do not know if we shall see them lit again in our lifetime. That is one path. There's another path where we fight through and tell the truth and we take our blows and we get up and we take our blows and we get the fuck back up and we take our blows and we get up and we just keep going. Now, people of the future are going to have to live in a world either made by the bad guys or made by the good guys. And do you know what they're doing? In a sense, in a very real way, is they're on the edge of their fucking seats, man. Those people in the future are on the edge of their fucking seats and they're saying, please don't give up, man. Please don't give up. Please, please, please don't give up. Don't fade. Don't fail. Don't fall. Don't even fucking falter. Okay, falter a little bit because you're human, but for God's sakes, don't fail us because we're helpless to live in the time that you influence but please, God above, please, please, please build a world that we can live in and not just be enslaved in. And I, millions, hundreds of millions, tens of millions, billions, whatever number you want to put on it, it's a lot of people sitting there on the edge of their cosmic seats in Plato's pre-dawn world of forms. They're sitting there looking down at this death match. And seeing that we stand before a tide of power such as the world has never seen before. We stand before a tide of power that the world has never seen before. The bad guys, the people 
who oppose us, who lie about us. They control the money supply. They control academia. They control public schools. They control the mainstream media. They control newspapers, magazines, reporters, movie studios. They control e-commerce to a large degree. They control social media platforms. <laughs> they can indoctrinate children virtually from birth onwards. And we have to take these broken people and try and breathe feral life into their withered and twisted brains. Do you know what it takes to stand against this kind of power? You know what it takes. Talking to the people out there. Talking to the people who are watching this a hundred or five hundred or a thousand years. Pretty fucking scary sometimes, man. It really is. You look at this structure, this power to buy off, to indoctrinate, to silence. I am just an aging drummer boy and the wars I used to play. And I've called the tune to many a torture session. The man's too big. The man's too strong. It's too big out there, man. It's too strong. We've all had that feeling, obviously, from time to time. There's maybe more, from, more than from time to time, right? Can't be done. Can't be won. It's fool's quest. It's masochism to try. It's pathological. It's a form of societal suicide. It's not worth it. can't be done it's pointless suffering it's like you're a monk beating himself for a god you don't even believe in anymore and of course the closer you get to the base of that power the bigger it looks right you see a giant building on the horizon it's tall it's tall, but it's, it's still it's pretty small. You get closer, that building gets taller and taller. You stand at the bottom of it, you look up, it's pretty dizzy. Seeing that vertical ice cube tray, a perfect symmetry, and plunged like a sword into the hilt of the earth, verticality. You look up at that shit, and it's like, oh my, I can't even see the top anymore. The closer you get to the roots of power, the more terrifying it is. And that's designed to have you flee. It's not accidental, these perspectives. And the warning shots are getting pretty brutal these days, as you know. You don't have to tell me. I don't have to tell you. And everybody is holding their breath who has to live in the world that we can create or fail. We either turn this light on or it's midnight forever. And the future is holding its breath. And the future is saying, do we name the schools for the bad guys 
Or do we get to name our freedoms for the good guys? Are we going to be forced to put up statues of Karl Marx? Or are we going to be free to honor those who in some of the darkest nights of humanity stood tall with the brightest galadriel style lights and kept on going? I won't say no matter what. I won't say no matter what. I'm still peaceful, reasonable, voluntary solutions. But if you think about what your life would be like if the abolitionists had given up. Think of what your life would be like if Socrates had given up. Think of what your life would be like if the founding fathers had given up and a king still ruled America. That's the perspective that gives you the strength. You won't get strength from the present. You won't get strength from the present. Because a truly moral man, a truly moral woman, appears as some scalding, incandescent, eye-burning vampire of who knows what the hell it is to the people in the present. We are largely incomprehensible to the people in the present because when you're founded on principle, you are incomprehensible to the base mammalian pragmatism of modern, amoral, bullshit, sophist society where to lie is to gain resources, and you gain resources, you win. We are incomprehensible to the present, and not because we're so hard to understand, but because we're so easy to understand, and people don't want to understand the lost mazes they've been jammed into. Their brains have been liquefied and poured into contorted glass tubes, that conveys the blood of the future to the moors of the rulers in a very efficient manner. And they strike out at the moral, the masses. They strike out at the moral for the example they don't want to believe is true. If we stand up and we are successful, not in our victory, because our victory is not determined by us. Our victory is determined by the courage this is somebody at the very beginning said, Steph, come and save the Republic. Entirely wrong. You're entirely wrong. <sighs> the quality of listenership, the quality of listening that you can summon and generate is the key to the future. Not expecting somebody else to come riding in and solve the problem for you. You understand that when morals come shooting at you and you want to hold up a mirrored shield and deflect it to someone else, integrity's coming at you and you want to deflect it to someone else. No, drop that shield, man. You've got to take it up yourself. You've got to take it up. I can't do it. No one can do it. Trump can't do it. No one can do it. Who is an individual? Obviously, Barr can't do it. Sessions couldn't do it. Comey couldn't do it. Expecting somebody to ride in and save you is exactly the narrative that the leaders want you to absorb. To absorb that narrative is to absolve yourself of the personal responsibility that you need to make good on the promise of goodness in this darkening world. 
No one is coming to save you. I'm only here to tell you that no one is coming to save you. It's to your personal relationships, your integrity, what you choose to speak or say, stay silent about. The people of the future who have to live in the fork of the road that we determine with the willpower of the present, the people in the future, you know, they're not looking to me. They're not looking to me. They're looking to you. If they are looking at me, they're only looking at me so they can get to you. There is no institutional salvation in the West. There is only personal integrity and personal action. Are you willing to have in your life people whose morals are the opposite of yours? That's all it comes down to. Are you willing to enforce your morality through voluntarism and ostracism? If necessary, if people simply oppose without reason, won't listen, avoid, deflect, pretend to agree and then change their minds the next day and can't be recovered. There is only life where there is thought. You understand? There is only life where there is thought. If there is no thought, there is no life. And I'm begging you, do not take your short, precious time in this world and march in a stupid, slow, empty-headed drumbeat phalanx surrounded by the dead. Do not join the dead before you die. And do not surrender the vital life of your conceptual brilliance and originality for the sake of not startling the dead into sudden attack. It's like this old show, it's a kind of old show now, The Walking Dead, where they have to rub themselves with zombie juice, with zombie goop, in order not to be attacked by the zombies. Don't do that. Of course, they never do it again for the rest of the damn show, which is sort of stupid, but anyway. Don't cover your brilliance up for the sake of not being attacked by the doll and the frightened. They'll attack you. They'll attack you. So what? They'll attack you. So what? Again, assuming they're not going to put a brick through your head, which is a distinct possibility these days. It's called a shit test, people. They attack you to see if you actually believe in what you say. Do you know how desperately most of the people who attack you for your virtues don't want you to fail that test? Do you know how desperate they are, not just the people of the future, the people all around you in your current life. Do you know how desperate they are that you fucking stand up for what you believe in? No bullshit, no compromises. You stand the fuck up for what you believe in. They're desperate for you to do that. It's like they're leaning over a cliff and they're about to fall and all you can do is throw them a rope. Do you know how strong they want that rope to be? Because otherwise they fall to their death. There's a canyon of the collective unconscious. There's a canyon of the general NPC, empty-headed nonsense we call living these days. And people are falling around you, left, right, and center. They're falling into this canyon where they don't get to be alive anymore. They don't get to have thoughts. They don't get to be themselves. They don't get to challenge. They don't get to question. They don't get to be what it is to be human. They lose their souls.
lose their souls and they're all falling over. And they're standing your back, you got your feet planted and you got a belt full of fucking rope. Right? People are falling down like bowling pins on the edge of this cliff. And you're like, here's a rope. Psych, just kidding. Here's a rope. Oh, sorry, that's candy floss. Here's a rope. Oh, sorry, it's mostly chewed through. You're going to fall anyway. Do you know how strong they want that rope to be? So that you can pull them back from the edge of death, spiritual death, intellectual death, slavery. How many of us are actually free? Fewer than light in the night sky. Cloudless, no moon. That's all I can offer you. We points of light are constellations of thought in a mostly dark sky, not just of human history, but across the world at present. And you understand, mankind can only navigate by the stars. No stars. Everyone gets lost. We wink out our candlelight. We wink out our searchlights. We wink out our brilliance. No one can navigate to the rocks, to the founding, to the shipwreck, to the drowning. Do they go? People desperately want you to stand up and survive their shit test so they can follow you. Think of an addict. Somebody who is a just stone, alcoholic, liver-rotted, pancreas-rotted, half-poisoned-with-alcohol compulsive drinker. Now, there standing on the edge of that cliff, and they're about to fall, not into the collective unconscious, but into a literal grave. Now, every time you say to them, stop drinking, they'll fight you. They'll fight you like crazy. Attack you, fight you. Do you know how badly they want you to stand up and say to them, no more. No more. You touch alcohol, you're out of my life. I won't stand the chaos, I won't stand the abuse, I won't stand the violence, I won't stand the stealing, I won't stand the dysfunction. I'm not having it in my life. I've got a short, precious life. I'm not going to spend it dragged along some dysfunctional drunk like a broken can on a kite's tail. No, thank you. And they want everyone in their life. See, everybody needs an excuse to drop their devils. You understand? They need an excuse to drop their devils. You know, like when you were a kid, you didn't want to go to some kid's party. What would you say? Ah, oh, I'd love to come, man. My mom won't let me. Oh, I'm grounded. Oh, I did this. Oh, I, I got to walk the dog. I, I got to clean the house. I can't come, man. I can't. Sorry. I'd love to. Can't come. You need an excuse. To drop your devils, you need an excuse. This man's squaring off with his alcoholism. He's been losing against that alcoholism for 20 fucking years. Why? Because... No one's giving him an excuse to stand up to his devil. Now, if everyone in his life says, this is what's called an intervention, right? Everyone in his life says, quit drinking or we're gone. Go get treatment. You touch alcohol again. Now, he's got an excuse to kick out his demon. Say, hey, man. Hey, alcoholism. Good run, man. You, You really had me by the short and curls. You had me by the balls and you squeezed until they turned from 
castanets to atoms. You, good job, man. But, you know, love to accommodate you, love to help, love to come to your party, but my mom won't let me. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> you know, like the old excuse, I'd love to go out with you Friday, Steph, but I gotta wash my hair. So, everybody's looking for an excuse to kick their conformity, their compliance, their subjugation. Sorry, government, love to listen to everything you say. Sorry, but hey, man, my best friend, my buddy, my buddy, my brother, my father, my cousin, my sister, my wife, they say to me, if I absorb any more propaganda, they're not going to have anything to do with me. Sorry, CNN. Love you guys, but can't. I mean, hey man, I'd love to come watch a CNN, but my mom won't let me. They're looking for you and begging you to stand between them and their disease. You know how somebody kidneys are failing. You're a genetic match. Do you know how much they want your kidney to live? That's what people need from your integrity. You understand? That's what people need from you. They need you to stand the fuck up so they have an ally against the devils pulling them down. Stop enabling. Stop supporting. Stop funding. Stop pretending everything's fine. Stop ignoring the toxic dysfunction of people addicted to lies, sophistry, institutional violence, and frankly, your potential demise. Stop it. Stop it now. Stop it tomorrow. Stop it next week. Stop it forever. Give people a weapon that they can use against conformity. Stop fucking conforming. And stop enabling and supporting conformity. You have the power. You have the paddles. You understand. You have the electricity to shock people back into thought, to bring them to life. You have that power. You got the defibrillator. Somebody's coding out. All you got to do, shock them back into coherence, cohesiveness, consciousness, comprehension. Stand between them and their devils. They're begging you to. Yeah, they'll fight you. Of course, it's not them fighting you. It's the devils fighting you, right? The priest comes in. It's not the little girl who's fighting the priest. It's, it's a demon in the priest, right? And the people in the future need to know who they're going to name their schools after. Who are they going to name their parks after? Who are, gonna, who are they going to name their libraries after? Or, to be more precise, the people in the future need to know who they're going to name their spaceships after, who they're going to name their jetpacks after, who they're going to name their time travel devices after. Because if we fail now, they ain't going to have shit. They get nothing. But slavery and subjugation, and they didn't choose it, and we have a chance. They won't. In the future, they won't have a chance. We have a chance now. We have a chance now. I've always been the kind of person that 
the harder you throw me down, the higher I'm going to come up. Why did they kick me off YouTube? Why did they kick me off YouTube? Because they had tried for a year and a half to suppress the living shit out of me. And I was still standing firm and I was still doing good views. They demonetized me. I was getting 10,000 new listeners a month. They suppressed me. They took me out of the search results. They took me out of the autocomplete. They took me out of everything. And I was still going. I got thrown down. And the speech of this quality doesn't come if I'm not. <laughs> it's kind of true, though. It's kind of true. Maybe it's my Christian upbringing, but I do my best work when cornered. But you guys, you all got to stop listening and start doing. You got to stop listening and start doing. And I'm not talking anything violent. I'm not talking anything abusive. You stand quiet in the certainty of your own integrity and you refuse to fucking participate with people who want you jailed for disagreeing with them. You understand that if you hold the value of the non-aggression principle and you hang with people who want to violate your person and property for disagreement, you are doing more harm to honor than they are. A man who claims honor and acts basely does more harm to the concept of honor than somebody who never claims to be honorable in the first place. If you want to discredit a diet book, you pay fat people to praise it. The diet book is not discredited by people who've never heard of it or don't care about dieting. The diet book is discredited by people who claim to value it but act in the opposite manner. Honor, virtue, integrity, courage are all discredited by you claiming to hold them as a value and refusing to act on them. Drop the values or live up to them. But walking around chest-thumping and parading about your virtue means that people can call virtue bullshit because of you. Because of you. You know, libertarians... Anarcho-capitalists, classical liberals, all rail against the Federal Reserve. You see, it just counterfeits money. What's fucking worse in this life? Counterfeiting money or counterfeiting virtue? Hmm? What's worse? What does more damage to you on a day-by-day, month-by-month, year-by-year basis? What does more damage to you? The fact that your money is losing value bit by bit or the fact that you have taken the greatest glory of mankind, a virtuous presentation, and turned it into a hollow-shelled vanity feeding of your own narcissism. Yeah, may cost me a couple of listeners. I don't fucking care. I don't care. This is the beauty of being out in the wilderness. I don't care what your blueprints are. I don't care what the traffic is. I'm out here in the desert, we happy few. Virtue is not something that you use to feel good about yourself or feel cool or feel different or feel edgy or feel alternative or feel part of the resistance. Reading Murray Rothbard isn't going to do shit. Saying to people in your life, be good or be gone, ho, 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 that will get some shit done. Be good or be gone. Be good or be gone.
And I say this about the realm of virtue too, be good or be gone. Stop discrediting virtue by claiming, oh, I'm into the non-aggression principles and taxation is theft and blah, 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 blah. Oh, you believe in the state? You want me thrown in jail for disagreeing with you? That's fine. That's fine. Let's, uh, let's watch some TV together. You understand, you couldn't be working for the opposition more if you tried. You couldn't be discrediting virtue more if you tried. You couldn't be discrediting philosophy more if you tried. Do not hang with people who want you killed. <laughs> I don't even know why I need to say this. I have no idea why I need to say this. Do not say I love you to people who want you in jail. Do not say, let's break bread to people who want to break you. Don't say, let's dine to people who want to dine on you. We could do this all day, but you get the point. Because we have profited the vestiges of virtue and liberty that remain. We have profited from those who actually live their fucking values. Do not betray them and betray the future by failing to live up to yours. Be good or be gone. Okay? All right. <sighs> what do we have? Sorry, long speech. Actually, I'm not going to apologize for that speech. It's what I wanted. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or the swine will trample your pearls and come at you angrier than before. How did the accusation of racism become such a powerful tool slash weapon in our society? Uh, well, because there are particular ethnicities, it's not just racist, but particular ethnicities that vote heavily for the left, that tend to be more socialist, and in order to avoid judging any group collectively, although that group tends to, again, you can't judge individuals, that group tends to act collectively, Anybody who judges any, any group collectively, even if the data supports it, uh, well, you have to call that person a racist so they'll stop pointing out the obvious, right? So, Thank you for the dose of reality. You are welcome. You are welcome. A truth poorly expressed is as bad as a lie. Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about, though. You're trying to reduce it to something that's pithy and, frankly, bullshit. You're trying to turn a powerful speech for the ages into a fortune cookie that you can go, hmm, and toss out. I'm not talking about a truth poorly expressed. I'm talking about people who claim to love the non-aggression principle, who then want to hang out and be best buds with people whose sole existence is predicated on violating the non-aggression principle. That's not a truth poorly expressed. That's a hypocrisy vividly manifested. Uh, let's see here. What did Stephen Crowder have to say about your deplatforming? I assume nothing. I assume that Stephen Crowder... See, the people... And I don't know. I don't, I don't watch his show. But, um, you know, when you're busy... When you're, when you're touring, you don't go to concerts, right? So when you're creating, you don't necessarily go and consume other people's stuff. So 
the challenge with my deplatforming, of course, was, you know, that they escalated to full-on white supremacy in order to blank me out from the public square, right? And it's all lies. It's all dangerous nonsense. And but, but what happens, of course, if they can coat you with a black enough brush, right, if they can really, really tar your reputation, then the people around you have a choice. And I'll say this to Stephen. I could go through the whole list of people um, who I've had shows with and so on. But what, here's what has to happen. So what has to happen is they have to sit there and say, okay, well, Steph's been called a white supremacist. Is he a white supremacist? Okay, well, no, no, no. He Here he rejects racial supremacy. Here he says there's no such thing as racial supremacy. Here he says equality before the law. So clearly he's not a white supremacist, right? So then what, what do they have to do? They have to put on a full-throated defense of me as not a white supremacist. I mean, this is a repulsive notion, obviously, the idea that whites are going to use the power of the state to rule over other ethnicities and subjugate and bully and control and jail them for just for the sake of their ethnicity is a repulsive, hideous, morally wrong, anti-non-aggression principle notion of the first order. Obviously, it goes against everything I believe in, blah, 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 right? So they'd have to sit there and say, holy crap, man, they really, really lied about them, right? But you see, that's the, that's the moment, right? That's the moment whether you do the right thing or not, right? It's the moment whether you do the right thing or not. And the moment whether you do the right thing is, okay, we're going to, you know, this guy, I mean, some of these people actually got them started in, in this whole thing. It's been around for a long time. and kind of got grandfathered in a lot of this stuff. So what they have to do is they have to say, oh, man, they're really going after this guy. I'm going to have him on to clear his name. But, you know, when the smoking crater where my channel and show was, a lot of people are like, ooh, step around. <laughs> you know, buy yourself another couple of months of peace, buy yourself another six months or maybe a year of income, you know. I get it. I mean, everybody has their price, and I understand that. And, you know, it's not, my heart is not full of hatred or disappointment or anything like that. And, I mean, there's, so there's stuff that people have been called out for that, you know, I'm not going to get into details here. Everybody knows. It can have these particular stories. So there's stuff where people have been called out for, and, you know, yeah, a lot of what they've done is, is pretty bad, right? What did I do? What did I do? And I talked about race and IQ. I talked about a variety of supremacy ideas, right? And, and, and anti them, right? And so what hap what's to happen is people have to sort of look at and say, okay, so the bad people are willing to lie to this extent to destroy someone and remove them from the internet, remove them from public discourse, remove them from blah, 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 right? Well, either Steph is sort of a bad guy or... The people we're facing are pretty nasty, pretty nasty. Now, when you're a talking head, if you look at, you know, stand at the base of that building, you look up, right? You look up, you're talking head, and you're like, my words ain't going to move this building, man. That's a pretty harsh thing to look into. That's a pretty harsh thing to look into because you've got to be able to look at that audience, good, look at that camera, be able to tell the truth. And if you now doubt your mission, oof, that's pretty rough. So I don't know what Stephen Crowder had to say about my deplatforming, uh, but uh, I, I kept track. I kept track. I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people. Peter Schiff, Peter Schiff said some nice things about me. Um, but I think I can't remember too many, too many other people. I don't remember too many other people. And you, if you want, you can go to freedomain.com and you can click on interviews. You can see it's just a brief list of you know the many, many hundreds of people that uh, I have uh, interviewed and, uh, yeah. <sighs> Let's see here. 
What else? We got your back, Steph. That's a nice thought. <laughs> it's a nice thought. Uh, can you expand a bit more on your new audio novel? <laughs> you want to ask an author about his novel? Oh, get comfortable. So it's a big-ass book, man. It's a big book. So many years ago, about 21 years ago, in fact, I listened to an audio book, History of Churchill and the lead-up to the Second World War. I found it so incredibly moving, so incredibly powerful. I was like walking down the street weeping with this audio book, and I'm like, oh, this shouldn't just be nonfiction, right? This needs to be brought to life. This needs to be brought to life. So I started a story about a British family, First World War, German family, and their paths across Europe in the space between the end of the First World War. Actually, the book starts at the during the First World War and ends at the beginning in the Battle of Britain, 1940. And it's all of Europe. I mean, it's Austria, it's Czechoslovakia, it's France, it's Germany, it's politicians, it's priests, it's atheists, it's family, it's psychology, it's depth, it's power, it's sex, <laughs> and the rise of political violence. Why, did, why does it occur? Why do people replace the words with the swords? And it's free, man. It's a great book. I promise you, you will get an enormous amount out of it. And it's... Um, freedomain.com forward slash almost, freedomain.com forward slash almost, and you'll understand why the book is called that. It's actually, I sort of noticed this when I was doing the last chapter last weekend. Um, it's 99 chapters, <laughs> so the novel almost has almost, almost 100 chapters. So it's, and I will put the book out uh, in EPUB. For those of you who are on my newsletter, my last novel, and the novel I wrote before that, which was a dark comedy novel, really a comedy novel, um, about life in the software industry and so on. Uh, it's called The God of Atheists, and I'll give this to you guys. You can get it. Um, you can get the audiobook for that, too. It's free. It is um, fdrurl.com, fdrurl, free domain radio URL, fdrurl.com forward slash TGOA for The God of Atheists, fdrurl.com forward slash TGOA. Just pause this, go get it, put it in your feed catcher, and you can get that audiobook which is really good. <laughs> it's a really good audiobook as well. Didn't Steph say he didn't want to go on Crowder? Um, no, I can't, I, I, I don't think I said that. Uh, Sticks, yeah, Sticks said some nice things too. Very nice, very nice. Great shoes, Steph. <laughs> really? <laughs> no E needed W. Steph, did you get compromised by the CCP? <laughs> I really didn't. I really didn't. I went to Hong Kong during a turbulent time. Yeah, so um, you can go to freedomain.com forward slash documentaries. And, you know, my three-bit documentaries are there. One on Poland, one on California, and one where I took faithful to tear gas for the course in Hong Kong. Oh, does the novel aspect of almost mean some of the historical background is not accurate? Go read the fucking novel. <laughs> What are you talking about? I don't know. I mean, I did my research, uh, and uh, uh, you just go read the no <laughs> go read the novel. Like I, what can I tell you, right? Jesus, that's <laughs> my go read the go read R Y F N. Read my F N novel. All right. <sighs> Is Schiff worth listening to? Um, again, I'm not consuming other people's content right now. I'm creating too much of my own, so I can't. Uh, 
The God of Atheists is the best novel I read this year. Oh, thank you. Yeah, sign up for my newsletter. I'll send out the EPUB as well. I'll put out the EPUB in a month or two, I'm sure. But uh... Social ostracism may fail with strangers if you believe they are an enemy and they happen to be the majority. Yeah, Peter Schiff is very anti-Bitcoin. Yeah, so um, Peter Schiff and I many years ago debated Bitcoin versus gold. I, uh, you know, and, and if you listen to me and, and you know I've been hit pretty hard with all of this deplatforming, demonetization uh, uh, and all of that, freedomain.com forward slash donate. I've taken some cryptos if you wouldn't mind um, uh, helping out. I, I think that would be nice. I think it's deserved. I think I've, I think I've earned it. So, um, uh, brief thoughts on Jordan Peterson's new book. <laughs> brief thoughts? Have you met me? Brief, that's the plan, that brief thoughts. So, so Jordan Peterson is, has written a sequel to 12 Rules for Life. Now, I don't want to rip on the guy. I think he's done a lot of good. There's a lot I like about him. Uh, I don't think he rushed exactly to my defense, even though I was sort of instrumental in sort of getting him going in some ways, right? He did a great job himself, but I was not uninvolved at the beginning of things. But, um, and I worked uh, pretty hard to defend people who've been deplatformed, really talking about free speech and its value and so on. But anyway, um, so Jordan Peterson, um, for those of you who don't know, his wife got ill and he had, I think, such terrible anxiety that he ended up taking, I think it was benzodiazepines, which are highly addictive, and you're really not supposed to take them for very long. Now, he's a psychologist, right? So he, he would know this. This is not something that would be completely outside his purview. But he took this stuff to the point where his withdrawal could have been fatal. Uh, he got really, really sick. His daughter, I think, is married to a Russian guy, so they ended up in Russia. They put him in a coma. They swapped out his blood, or I don't know, something like that, right? He got covid uh, he got pneumonia twice. Uh, I mean, he really was floating around the pearly gates for quite some time. And it was, it's, it, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. And, of course, he says a lot of it is to do with his wife getting cancer. Well, you know, I got cancer. My wife didn't end up addicted to drugs. Um, so it's there's something that didn't quite gel as far as, I think, being able to master the life challenges that you would expect a psychological master to be able to manage. And again, I have a lot of sympathy for the guy. I have a lot of sympathy for the guy. And some pretty untoward things happened with regards to his daughter and her marriage. You can go look into that if you want. I don't want to sort of repeat all of that sort of stuff here. But I got to tell you, I mean, he's saying how to live. His life turned into an almost total, almost fatal disaster through choices that he made, the choice to um, whatever was going on for him, the choice to go leaning into benzodiazepines, um, I, you know, it didn't turn out to be a very wise choice. And of course, if you are a psychologist, I think what you're saying is you have a deep understanding of the human psyche and human understanding and, and human blah, 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 blah. And so if you then run to um, very dangerous mind-altering drugs to deal with an emotional crisis, you know, again, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that there was nowhere in 12th Rules for Life. It's like, okay, well, if it gets really difficult, just take some drugs. If it gets really tough, just take some drugs. I don't think that was anywhere there. Now, I'm not, I mean, look, I mean, the poor Bill Mitchell had to have, like, basically space alien life forms carved out of his lungs for a variety of reasons I don't pretend to understand because I'm not a doctor. And, you know, they cracked his chest open. They put him to death for a day or something like that. I don't know what the hell happened, but it was some sort of 
crazy John Hurt saving in a spaceship kind of operation. And he, um, he's taken painkillers. I don't, of course he is. I mean, of course you would, right? I think I've only taken painkillers once in my life and they, they're actually pretty nice. <laughs> you know, they're pretty nice. When I had to get a tooth out because it never grew from when I was a kid, it got kind of buried half under the gum. So I had to get the tooth taken out and it was ankylosed, which means it kind of, the, the tooth base had fused with the, um, it's why my mouth droops a little on this side, right? So the toothpaste had fused with the jaw. I had to have that thing out. And uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a little tender. So I took, uh, I, I think I took like a day and a half of, of painkillers that were prescribed for that. And yeah, they're pretty nice. <laughs> you know, they do give you this kind of helium glow and this uplift, which I only get from speeches like I just gave and, and uh, telling the truth. And all right, so they're pretty nice. But I think, you know, you... you you gotta not take, you gotta not take them again. I know he's so for for Bill Mitchell. You know he's he's in serious pain, and you know my thoughts go out to you, Bill. Like like massive props on on getting through this. I'm glad you have, and it's it's a god awful thing to go through. I, I knew a guy once who had his chest cracked, and it's just like it's pretty satanic what you have to go through afterwards to heal. It's really rough. So I mean nobody's gonna begrudge painkillers for operations and things like that, but you know the stuff that he was taking, and I, you know what I'm just. I'm not even going to ask you guys for a fact check, but I'm just, I'm pretty sure it was benzodiazepines. But uh, let me just, let me just double check because I don't want to keep repeating that if I, um, if I have not recalled it. Um, and, you know, Peterson had worked on UN stuff and all of that. So that's, uh, yeah, benzodiazepine, that was, he, he, he overcome a crushing physical dependency on benzodiazepines. And to the point where withdrawal, I think, could have, could have, uh, could have killed him. And uh, so, if if he had a spiritual issue, then, you know, fistfuls of incredibly addictive pills that had him in a medically induced coma, it's not showing that advice works. You know, because. Uh, in the 12th Rules for Life and stuff, and again, like the guy did a lot of good work and all that, so I'm just, you know, if you're asking, I'll tell you, right? But in 12 Rules for Life, it wasn't like, well, unless something really difficult comes along, then just take, you know, fistfuls of benzos or whatever, even though you know they're dangerous, right? That's, and I'm, I'm sorry to be reductionist and so on, but, um, I mean, I could have said, oh my God, I got diagnosed with cancer. I'm going to take fistfuls of painkillers or, or benzodiazepines or antidepressants. It's like, no, I got to face that mortality. I got to face cancer. I got to face it alert. I got to face it alert. I mean, for philosophical, psychological self-knowledge reasons, A, and B, because I don't want my family to have to go through me having cancer and me getting addicted to drugs (laughs) as well. That's a bad comment. Boom, boom. That's a one-two, right? So his wife, you know, she had to deal with cancer, which was not going well. And then I think she got some sort of miracle turnaround. Fantastic. Couldn't be more happy. But now she's got to deal with this. So she went straight from cancer, which is to some degree stress-related, I think, to, can, can be to some degree. I don't want to blame people who have cancer or anything like that, but it can be to some degree as far as I understand it. So she's got to go from cancer to her husband almost ODing off benzos. That's not really helping her for him, right? So there was something that didn't... I mean, I think I know what it was, and it doesn't really matter for now because it's just a theory. I don't want to sort of unpack someone else's psyche in my own outside the aquarium view. So I think I know what it was, but 
something occurred for him which could not be solved through thought, advice, and self-knowledge. And this is the guy who'd said to everyone, deal with your own shit first, like clean your room, just start with your own stuff, don't think big, think small, think about your own life. And then he's out there and thinking big about the world, but his own life, his own room turned into a mess, turned into a disaster. Now, I think this means he could have wonderful things to say in the public square. He really could have wonderful things to say in the public square. Now, the great challenge of this kind of passage, and I don't want to talk about Jordan Peterson at the moment, because, again, I like a lot of what the guy's done. He's been a very uh, powerful figure and brought a lot of truth to the world, and there's a real value in that. But, you know, when you go through this kind of disaster, like, I don't know, let's say i, I got to do a show tomorrow. Oh, my wife's divorcing me or something like that, right? Couldn't take the attacks or whatever, right? So if I, if I had to sort of, okay, get divorced, right? I, you know, I've been saying we're never getting divorced. I love her. She loves me. It's all great. That's not all great, but, you know, I mean, our relationship is great. The world can be a bit, bit of a challenge at times. But if I come and say, oh, we're getting divorced, I have a lot of self exam Like, I got something wrong. I have a lot of self-examining to do, right? Because a lot of people have said, oh, you wait, you're going to get divorced, and then you're going to find out about the court system, blah, 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 right? Okay. So... And I've said, no, we're not getting divorced. No, we're, you're going to go the distance. And so I've, I guess, to some degree, staked my reputation and inspired other people to get married because I'm so certain about my own marriage and so on. So let's say I get divorced tomorrow, or I, my wife divorces me tomorrow. Um, I, I've got a, I got some apologizing to do. I've got some, what was I so wrong? How did I get things so wrong? What did I do that was so uh, incorrect? How did I miss something? Blah, 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 right? I thought I thought there was an owl. There's no owl. Whatever, right? Not all women are like that, for those who don't know the acronym. So there would be a lot. And, I, you know, how long would it be before I gave people marital advice again? I, I, I'd be in the sort of Tom Likas situation. The guy was married and divorced four times. He didn't give a whole lot of marital advice other than don't do it, which is um, don't do it if you're Tom Likas, of course, right? So I don't know. I've not read the new book. I, I think it's still in process. And I think the Penguin publisher got a bunch of woke people all up in arms about the fact that Jordan Peterson's being published there or whatever and just just stupid stuff. I mean, it's so flimsy. You know, the, the people who silence others, it's just a confession that you don't know what the hell you think. You have no defense for what you think. You don't really think anything. You have no robustness. You have no intellectual curiosity. You have no confidence. I mean, I'll go up against communists and debate them 12 different ways from Sunday. And communism killed 100 million people in the 20th century. And you can't take a psychologist's book. I mean, are you kidding me? You just, all you're doing is you're saying, I'm not cut out for this, you know? You know if, you know, there was a a, a fight, right? Uh, there was a big, a big fight with Mike Tyson and some dude, right? Now, the Mike, the guy, the dude fighting Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson is like, he wants to come in there and fight, right? I mean, if, if there's some guy who's like, he wants to fight Mike Tyson, he gets, gets close to the ring and he bursts into tears, and doesn't want to fight and screams and runs away. It's like, okay, so you just, you know, you know, you could you can do lots of things in your life, but fighting, boxing isn't one of them, right? Just not your thing, right? It's okay. You don't have to be good at everything, right? And so you know, you know it's a bunch of liberal, probably white women who are just freaking out and upset and shattered and <laughs> not in a safe space. It's like, okay, so if a book is that scary to you, if arguments and facts and data and evidence and reason or whatever is in that damn book, if it's that scary for you, 
It just means you shouldn't work at a book publisher. <laughs> it's just, it's not your thing. You're too fragile. You're too frail. You're too, I don't even know what. If, if a book scares you, don't work for a publisher. <laughs> I don't even know why I need to say this stuff. You know, if you're terrified of cameras, maybe don't be a YouTuber <laughs> or whatever, right? A, a rumble person, right? So if, if books scare you, you're, you're not, the publishing industry is not for you. If arguments and evidence and data and facts, even if, or, or falsehoods or whatever, if, if arguments scare you, then you need to go make someone a sandwich because that's not for you, right? Or maybe you need to go, I don't know, uh, be an archaeologist or something. There's probably arguments in archaeology too. But all the people who are just like, they need their safe spaces and their puppy videos and their hug pillows and stuff, it's like, okay, that's, that's fine. I mean, I, listen, I, I'm not going to be a boxer tomorrow. <laughs> if you put me in front of like Mr. Earbiter and I'm like, I'm heading for the hills too. It's not my thing. It's not my thing. So that's why I don't, that's why I'm not pulling a Mickey Rock and becoming a boxer in my dotage, right? Because I don't want to be a boxer. Getting punched in the head scares me. I need to protect the brain. <laughs> not the face, not the brain, not the face, not the brain. Not the throat, right? So just, it's not, like I read this stuff, like, oh, they're up in arms. The book is scaring them. It's like, so don't work in a publishing house because books are scary to you. It doesn't make any sense. Like, if you're genuinely terrified of snakes, don't work at a snake exhibit. You know, when I was a kid, I remember watching this, was it Dr. No or something? Sean Connery had this big, big-ass tarantula crawling up his chest. I don't like spiders, to be honest with you. I don't like spiders. I almost lost a camera once over a spider. I was taking pictures on the edge of a cliff with a girlfriend of mine back in the day, and there's this big-ass spider on my camera, and I threw it just instinctively. And then I happened to catch the strap just as it sailed over the cliff edge, and I almost lost a camera because of a stupid spider, right? I don't like them. Plus, you know, going to Africa a couple of times, the spiders are pretty terrifying. And, uh, you know, hearing them knock and ask for a glass of water in Australia was a bit unnerving as well. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of spiders. Now, I'm not that bad with them anymore. My daughter likes them. I can put them in my hand if they're not too big and, and so on. And I, you know, I went to a, um, a butterfly exhibit and they put some, like a grasshopper half the size of my forearm on me. And it's like, okay, I'm not a huge fan of insects, but I can manage this. I can deal with it. Um... You know, when I was freaking out about spiders, you know what I didn't do? I didn't <laughs> join Steve Irwin's touring zoo of put spiders up your nose for money. Just don't do it. If you're really terrified of heights, you know, maybe uh, don't give damn tours or something like that. You know, just manage your emotions and don't put yourself in situations where you're going to be triggered all the time. And if you're scared of books, don't look at a fucking publisher. Like, <laughs> I just think that's kind of funny. I don't know why people, like, you're just confessing that, <laughs> just confessing that it's not your thing. Yeah, it's just confessing that you're not your thing. All right. Um, mandated vaccines. Yeah, these mRNA vaccines, they're kind of fucking creepy, man. I'll tell you. They are kind of creepy. I'll tell you straight up. I'm not going to be in line. All right. Uh, all right. Let's do a question or two more. If you don't mind, if you have a question for me, ugh, I would like some questions or whatever. All right. What do we got here? Is there ever a difference between the moral, between doing the moral thing and the right thing? 
Oh, my God. Listen, you've got about 12,000 moral actions that you can be 100% certain of before you get to those blurred lines, my friend. This, this is what happens, right? I gave a great speech. Come on, I could feel the goosebumps in my own gut there. I gave a great speech earlier about just the non-aggression principle and how to enforce it through ostracism in your own life so that you can save people from falling into the vat of the collective unconscious, right? It's a great speech, right? Now, you know, how, you know what I'm talking about. You know that you can do that. You know that you can make that stand. And then you come to me and say, well, what, what, what's the difference between the, the moral thing and the right thing? Because, you know, it's a lot, a lot, right? I just gave you an entire lifetime of moral spine and simple things to do to save the world. And all you're doing is just kicking up a whole bunch of dust and saying, well, how could I possibly confuse myself further so I don't actually have to act on the simple shit that Steph said? How? Well, yes, okay, but, but at what point would an ape become intelligent enough that, that it would not be, that it would be covered under the non Oh, my God. It's like Fafford and the Grey Mouse or the Curse of the Smalls and the Stars, right? You just... You need to move yourself to some place of potential moral or linguistic ambiguity so you don't have to fucking act and do the right thing. Go do the right thing. Go stand up for the non-aggression principle in your own life. Go have frank discussions with people and say, I'm not supporting your addiction to violence anymore. I'm not supporting your addiction to propaganda anymore. Be good or be gone. Pretty simple, pretty clear. Right in line with everything you believe. Go act and you're like, but what's the difference with the morality and the right thing? No, no, no. Then just... Stop it. Just stop it. Stop, stop pretending to be moral. Uh, a question asked earlier intrigued me quite a bit. To expand it a bit, why does an accusation have any power or effect to the normal person? I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, because I was accused of things, I was deplatformed. I'm not, I'm not sure what you're talking about. I don't care about some person who doesn't like me. I don't give a shit about that at all. Come on. Uh, let's see here. What should the purpose of history be? Well, to teach morality through the empiricism of the past. Why does an accusation of racism carry any negative weight with the normal person? Because an accusation of racism now can destroy your life. That's right. All right. Twelve rules for escaping blame. Yeah, we'll see. I'm a truck driver. I listen to any audiobook you put out, Steph. Well, hey, man, thanks you for delivering stuff. Uh, it's a big deal and uh, very helpful. All right. Yeah, I mean, the term racism is uh, something, it's just, it's an IQ test at the moment. It's an IQ test at the moment. What do you make of smart people who are leftists? What's the deal with fairly smart people with awful ideas and arrogant about? So you can be, uh, intelligence and wisdom are not the same thing. There's a reason there's two categories in the Dungeons and Dragons character sheet. Not an argument, but an important piece of evidence, I suppose, right? So you can be smart and completely amoral. Like, or you can be smart, see... Leftism, and it's pure tribalism, you understand that. It's pure tribalism. And they say this because identity politics. Identity politics is because the word tribalism is a bit too obvious. Identity politics. Identity is your race, your gender, your sex, your pronouns, your whatever it is. Like that's, that's your identity. And the politics are how can you best leverage your tribe, your group, your clan in order to get political goodies from everyone else. Identity politics is pure, straight-up tribalism. And so you can be smart and tribal, right? There's lots of ideologies out there, lots of religions, lots of philosophies out there, populated by some very smart people, 
that are pure in-group preference. Pure in-group preference. And of course, all they do is oppose anybody else's in-group preference and all of that. So do not mistake intelligence for wisdom. It's really, really, really important. So what I always ask myself is, okay, does, is the, are the ideas universal? Are they universal? Well, right. Is written history all true? I'm sorry, that's just, you got to ban you, man. I got to ban you. Sorry, that's just, uh, I mean, that's like, we're all dumber now for having read that. All right. What do you think about Kant's ethics? He was about universalizing ethics. So what made him fail? What did he miss? So a categorical imperative is act so that the principle of your action becomes a general principle for all. And so he would say, well, don't steal because do you want everyone to steal? No. Well, if you don't want everyone to steal, then don't steal. Well, first of all, why not? Right? Because the problem is if nobody steals except you, you're going to make out literally like a bandit, right? Because if nobody steals in the world except you, like that invention of lying thing that happens in some Ricky Gervais movie. So if you're the first person to figure out stealing, I mean, you're because nobody locks their doors, nobody has any alarms, nobody has any security, nobody, everyone thinks they just lost whatever, right? They just mislaid it or whatever, right? So uh, unfortunately, the more people who obey a moral law, the more profitable it is to break it, right? I wrote this on, two years ago, I wrote this on Twitter. Um, Dumb people break laws, smart people make laws, right? So why not steal? Well, because it couldn't be universal. So what? So it can't be universalized. So what? I had, had, okay, so what? It becomes more profitable if you're the only thief. The more people so the more people you can convince to respect property rights, the more you can steal from them because they'll be productive and they'll make things and so on, right? So he's saying, well, it just should be universal. Whatever you do, can you universalize it? If not, then you shouldn't do it. It's like, well, okay, why not? It's really profitable to it. And we, we're here to survive, not to be moral. We're here to spread our genes. That's, that's evolution and biology. And that's, just, of course, all somewhat discovered after Kant. And the other thing, too, is um, you can universalize stuff that's not moral. So if you're the biggest, strongest guy in the village, you can say, oh, yeah, arm wrestling, I'm willing to universalize that. I'll, 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 the, the biggest, toughest, most violent guy in the village will say, oh, yeah, I think big violent fights is how we should all divvy up resources. I'm willing to universalize that. Anyway, so uh, Nietzsche was mentally ill? Uh, unknown. Uh, the, the theory is probably more true that uh, Nietzsche got syphilis from a prostitute, and uh, uh, that's why he ended up writing a poem to a horse and living, being taken care of by a sister for 10 years. Isn't racism a form of survival instinct? No. Uh, no. No, I don't think so. Sorry, that's not a I just didn't, don't even know. Is in-group genetic preference something that drives evolution? Yeah, but I mean, we're not animals, right? I mean, we're not animals, so. How come Nietzsche never escaped his sadness? Do you know, Stefan? Well, so you've always got to look for physical ailments with, with some of these people, right? So Nietzsche suffered from, if I remember rightly, crippling migraines and stuff like that. And it's a, that's a big deal. It's going to have a big condition on your world, conditional effect on your worldview. I've been fairly lucky, and I mean, I work out and, and tend to eat fairly well, but um, I don't have any chronic pain or ailments or anything like that. I very rarely get headaches and, and so on, right? So, you know, people like, I mean, Hitler suffered from unbelievable gastrointestinal disorders to which he was taking 100 or 200 pills a day, which are known to produce psychosis and rage and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. 
do you consider Trump taking down Section 230 to be a good thing, or is that just what the elites want? So the 230 thing, um, it's, e it's easy to weaponize. So if everybody becomes responsible for everything that's posted on their platform, then it's going to be weaponized against small to medium-sized websites, a lot of conservative websites and so on, right? So conservatives don't sit there as a whole and say, oh, how can we troll this website? How can we create fake user accounts to make this person look bad? You know, I get these, these assholes on my streams from time to time who are just like, 1488, you know, just like, uh, you know, these neo-Nazis and all that. And, and I don't believe for a second that they're neo-Nazis. I believe that they're just leftists trying to make me look bad. And, and, but, you know, sane, healthy human beings don't just sit there and, and stalk and, and try and destroy people because, you know, sane human beings have light, laughter, love, happiness, things to do, places to go, people to see, hugs to have and give, and just don't sit there wasting your entire existence trying to smear other people from the other side of a cum-soaked keyboard, right? So... Um, I would uh, uh, say that uh, the Section 230 thing is going to be very easy to weaponize, right? So they'll probably put something in that says, well, you have to have this number of users in order to be subject to it and this, that, and the other, right? So they'll probably try and carve it off and make sure it doesn't get weaponized against the smaller websites. But um, if it's done in a hurry, then they'll cast the net too wide and it will end up being used, weaponized against conservative sites and not being used to take the editorial thumb off the scale of the larger sites. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, so the bit shoot thing too, right? Yeah, there's a lot of lot of leftist trolls who go to bit shoot and just try and make it look bad and all that kind of stuff, right? So, yeah, it's it's all very uh, very silly, right? Thoughts on Joe Rogan selling his soul? Well, I don't think he had one to sell, if I understand this correctly. So, all right. Have you ever had a fear of death? Sure. Of course. You, you can't be human and alive without having a fear of death. You know, uh, you get that cancer diagnosis, uh, you'll think about it somewhat a little bit too, son. <sighs> a girl I like shares her goals and values with me, but she has cancer. Thoughts? So cancer is a bell curve, right? I mean, there's some cancer, like the, the one that got... Um, Oh, gosh. Jeez, I should remember his name. Um, God is not great. The one that got Christopher Hitchens, I mean, had like a... I remember seeing an interview with him on the street. I never read his last book, Mortality, because it was around the same time I was being treated, and I did not want to read a descendant to cancer death story while I was being through chemo. But um, Christopher Hitchens was told the survival rate of his cancer was only 10%. And I remember him saying, those aren't the odds that I would have chosen, right? It's a pretty, and it's a pretty, pretty good way of putting it, right? So then um, it, it could be a cancer that's pretty treatable. I mean, Dan, Dan Bongino has a cancer that's, I think, got a pretty good survival rate and all that kind of stuff. Are you mad the Dune movie was delayed? Why on earth would I give a rat's ass about the Dune movie? I hate those books. I hate the original movie. I just think I think they're trash. I just I just honestly, I think they're trash. Is the landmark forum a cult? Um, I don't think so, but they're pretty sales heavy. They're pretty sales heavy. Did you ever watch the Orville? No, I don't know what that is. Christopher Hitchens' book Morality is well worth a read. Yeah, excuse me while I tell 
anybody who tells me to read a book about a guy who justified the invasion of Iraq called morality, sorry, no credibility for me whatsoever. I have lost friends to the Landmark Forum. They've demanded I join, and I didn't, so they ostracized themselves. Well, why didn't you give it a try? I mean, if you, if you care about those people, why? I mean, look, I'm not saying, you know, go join some sex culture or get yourself branded or whatever the hell happens. But, you know, if, if you really care about people, go to them. Go, if they suggest, come join this for an evening. Um, I did, uh, it was a fam friend of mine who I did take some Landmark Forum stuff many, many years ago, and I thought it was actually quite helpful. I got into, of course, as you can imagine, some pretty robust debates because I'm pretty skilled in philosophy and they were talking a lot about uh, epistemology. And I actually, I found some stuff quite helpful. I really did. I found some stuff quite helpful. And um, if you trust your friends, go. If you trust yourself and you don't want to do it, then just say no. So, I mean, don't be so frail. I mean, expose yourself to uh, different ideas and arguments. Don't put yourself in situations of danger or coercion. Don't sign any thousand-year contracts. Don't give people your life savings or anything like that. But, you know, if it's just somebody says, come and hear these arguments, come and hear these ideas, go if you care about them and you trust them. But if you're like, oh, no, you're in a cult, and like, okay, well, that's not great, so. If the left takes over the U.S. completely, will the dollar eventually be devalued like the Argentine peso was a few years back? <laughs> eventually. <laughs> no, not eventually. Best fiction books you read. Also, would you ever make a books list? I will. Right, uh, next, next thing after I finished my uh, audio book of Almost uh, is um, the book on parenting. Uh, I've got some, stuff of, some of it done, but uh, all of that. So. Did you already cover the vote of fraud situation Trump talked about today? No, that's, that's not for a philosopher. That's for the courts, man. That's for the courts. If the courts aren't going to deal with it, if the DOJ is not going to investigate it, there's no, there's no point a philosopher talking about it. Are you kidding me? This is not something that can be cured by words, right? If the, if the election was stolen, you can't cure that with an argument. You can't cure that with words. You can't cure that with, with syllables. You can't do anything like that, right? See, here's the thing, right? If, if, if you go to a philosopher, you come to a philosopher, you come to me and you say, okay, what's the justification for property rights? So, oh, you know, self-ownership, you own the effects of your actions, you can't contradict it without enforcing that rule, so blah, 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 right? So if you come to me and you say, what's the justification for property rights? How can they be defended? What does it mean? What is the definition of self-ownership? Why do you own the effects of your actions? And what, under what circumstances is property legitimate, valid, and viable, and moral, and blah, 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 right? Fantastic. Fantastic. If you come to me and say, hey, man, someone stole my car, <laughs> What am I going to say? Morally, that's wrong. Is that going to get your car back? And no, it's not, right? You're going to have to go to the cops. You're going to have to write. The solution is not going to be me saying something. So whatever's happening with the U.S. election, it's, it's way beyond what I'm, what I'm, it's way beyond what I can do. It's way, like, you've got to know the limits of language. I can defend property rights all day. Nothing I say is going to get your stolen car back if it was stolen. So, yeah, that's why. I mean, nothing for me to say with regards to this stuff. You know, it's, I mean, come on. Come on. Uh, the Fountainhead is my favorite. The Fountainhead is my favorite Rand book. I mean, as far as fa uh, fiction goes. Thank you for your streams and podcasts. I'm your, on year eight of Defoo. Life got so much better. Uh, you know, it's true. If you get crazy people out of your life, it matters a whole lot less what the government is doing. 
Steph said, politics is nothing more now than being very particular about who you surround yourself with. No, that's not what I said, but it's fine. <laughs> Why listen to me when you can make something up yourself? I loved Rant, but man, Atlas Shrugged movie was lame. Yeah, they didn't quite have the budget. I didn't, Kissinger? Why on earth would I care about Kissinger? Yeah, Kissinger power. I don't care about that guy. I understand the purpose of forgiveness, but equally I think some actions are unforgivable. Is it evil to kill a pedo after the damage is... I don't I mean, that's, again, that, that's um, a matter for courts, justice, and law, and so on, right? Uh, but yeah, of course some actions are unforgivable. That which you cannot make good, you cannot apologize for. I don't know Martin Armstrong. Don't know. Don't know anything about that name. I mean, unless I remember something. <laughs> unless there's something that, that I've completely missed. So, All right. Steph says, give all your money to Top Feed. Says Top Feed. <laughs> he said it, not me. <laughs> it's good. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. Hey, man, it's right there on the screen. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. Thank you so much for a great evening's chat. And do you think people were happier when there was less technology and fewer choices, such as the early 1950s? No, people were happier in the 1950s because one guy could raise five kids on one salary with, with a nice house in the suburbs and a peaceful neighborhood, and uh, life was much more rational, which is why the communists in the 60s had to demonize the capitalists of the 50s. All right. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. Thanks, everyone, so much for a great evening's chat. I hope it was helpful to you. Certainly was uh, important to me, and uh, I love how you guys bring out the best in me in terms of speaking. I really, really appreciate that. So have yourselves a great evening. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. I will talk to you guys soon. Take care. Bye. Oh, I should, after that action, I should probably do this action too. Okay, bye. Take care.